Welcome to the Infinite Spark of Being podcast. My name is Keith Welsh. And in this episode, I'm going to talk to you about the ego, self-concept, and identity. Um, But before all that, if you're interested in the books, uh, apparel, or donating monthly to the podcast through Patreon, you can go to theinfinitesparkofbeing.com where you can find the links to all of those things. And don't forget to follow on social media platforms. I appreciate it. Um, So this is, as usual, my understanding of the topic. I'm not attached to my understanding. So if you have comments, questions, um, anything, feel free to reach out. Don't let me get away with anything here. I'm open to suggestions. I'm open to opinions, please. Um, And if you have any ideas for Patreon tiers outside of the $1 or $5 kindness donations, please let me know. Um, I would like to get some sort of a monthly Zoom group going Uh, where we could do something a little deeper. But um, if I see some interest in it, I'd like to get that going. So all that being said, let's get started. So first, let's take a quick look at uh, what the ego is. Um, The ego is personal importance, personal identity, and reality testing. Um, Reality testing just means that when you pinch the arm of a chair, for instance, you don't feel the pinch because you aren't the chair. Um, You know, ego gets a really bad reputation as being the source of all this trouble, but I just don't see the ego as the real problem. I believe that the attachment to a fixed solid identity or the I is the real issue. Um, I mean, personal importance isn't so bad, right? Like you feel that you're important enough to take care of yourself, don't you? Like uh, you have a level of self-importance that allows you to better yourself, to eat right, things like that. Um, As for personal identity, we meet through identity. I get dressed every day, I choose certain clothes, I shave, I don't shave, I get tattooed, I don't get tattooed. It's all just weird identity stuff. It's just costuming. Um, And that's not such a big deal if there's no attachment to it, right? But at one point in our life as humans, our identity was our role in the tribe and that role was our lifeline. Maintaining that role and that importance was a matter of life and death. Not being useful wasn't a good thing, you know? Um, Our status in the tribe was our role. The service we provided to others was our role. The duty we performed was our identity in the tribe or the village. So you can see the evolutionary significance in personal importance and personal identity. So, you know, the ego is just a, it's a mechanism. You know, it comes with the body, Uh, You get a body, you get an ego. Um, It's a great tool for moving through uh, three-dimensional reality. Um, There's an old saying, the ego is a great servant, but a terrible master, you see. Um, By the way, it's raining outside. It's been raining a lot here in Florida, so I hope it's not disturbing. Um, So before we move forward in time, let's go back. Uh, Let's go way back 
you're in the womb. <laughs> and when you're in the womb, you don't need an ego. Uh, you don't need psychology. While in the womb, you are the environment. You are symbiotic with your environment. So reality testing isn't needed. You don't need importance. You know, importance is a survival thing. In the womb, there's nothing to survive, at least not to your knowledge yet. Um, you're just floating there. Everything is taken care of. There are no others. It's just you. You and your world are one thing. But then you're pushed into separateness. You're pushed into the world. And then the ego structure begins to form. Um, before that, there's just simply no need for it. There's no need to be a separate somebody. So the ego is a mechanism and it is the result of taking birth in a human body. Now, let's look at the self-concept. Remember, the self-concept is who we believe we are based on the responses we get from other people, from the environment. And um, a concept is an invention to help sell or publicize a commodity. And the invention I'm trying to sell and publicize is my Keithness. The concept of Keith, um, my personality, my qualities, and the qualities that I'm trying to sell are the ones that I get the strongest response from others from, right? Um, typically, we want others close to us. So we try to sell the pieces of us that are most appealing. We try to mimic or cultivate qualities that we believe others will find desirable so that we can get them close to us. Um, I think the evolutionary significance of this is also obvious <laughs> together with others, um, in a tribe or a village, that meant that we live. You know, if we were alone outside of the village or tribe, that meant that we'd probably die. And that's why when we are uh, singled out or not picked, so to speak, it registers in the brain the same place physical pain does. Now, when it comes to the self-concept, the good qualities seem obvious, right? But what about when we try to cultivate qualities that single us out? Those qualities that push others away are still due to our need for personal importance. I remember as a kid, I didn't love the band Suicidal Tendencies as much as I loved drawing their logo on everything and the lyrics to a song that said, I saw your mommy and your mommy's dead. I saw her laying in a pool of red. I took a picture because I thought it was neat. Your dead mommy lying in the street. And I wrote that on everything for my Christian mother and my Baptist teachers to see because I was creating an identity based off of you getting the fuck away from me. <laughs> um, you know, another funny thing, Iron Maiden has always been the band that I, I really liked, but as a kid, I loved them. And like Number of the Beast wasn't my favorite song, but most inflammatory title when you're going to a Baptist school. So I also drew that on everything. Um, I mean, my friends and I, we were into punk rock and hardcore music. And when I think back, it was a way to show the general public, our parents, teachers, and other kids that we were nothing like them. In fact, we were better and different. Um, we weren't going to conform to their ideas of who we should be. Yet at the same time, we were trying to find acceptance among, I'm sorry, acceptance amongst each other, amongst our tribe. And it was very tribal. Uh, the bands you listened to uh, said a lot about who you were, or at least what you, or who you wanted to be uh, seen as. Um, it was wild. When I think about it, 
you know, I always had this wide variety of music that I liked, but there were my identity bands, right? Um, the bands that spelled out who I was to others. Um, these were showcased at, you know, certain times to give me an identity amongst my peers. They let others know what my values stood for, right? So, you know, it's like, I, you know, I, I liked, um, I liked Merle Haggard as a kid. My parents were into country music, but you know, I wasn't going to scratch that onto my trapper keeper, right? That wasn't, <laughs> that wasn't bothersome. So, you know, what we start to see is that this personality, this identity thing, it's, it's relative, you know, the identity of Keith doesn't exist. Keith is a concept and that concept has no fixed objective truth. Um, who I think I am and who you think I am is always going to be slightly different, if not extremely, like completely different, right? So, you know, at that point, you know, we have to ask, are we attached to everyone seeing us the way we see us? Once we can notice all of this, right? This is the problem, you know, uh, problems start when I need everyone around me on board with my identity, right? I think the best example for me was being a bouncer. I started bouncing in clubs and bars when I was about 25 and I didn't stop till I was 40, which is, you know, old to be wrestling drunk people. Um, but I always had a side gig as a bouncer, um, and for those of you that might not be familiar with the term, a bouncer is a person who does security at bars and clubs. They work the door, check IDs, throw or you know escort people out when they've become a problem. But it actually became an interesting sadhana for me or practice. Um, I found that if I was attached to my identity as bouncer, then I needed the customer to be on board or in agreement with my role. I needed their validation. Um, the effectiveness of my role hinged on that validation, right? It's like it was up to them. <laughs> if I was attached um, to my identity and they weren't buying in or attached to it, then I felt like I needed to show them. And you can all imagine how that goes and the complications that come from that sort of mindset and you can also see how the karma being the predisposition of the mind to attraction aversion, you can also see how that plays out as well when a bouncer is attached to his bouncerness and no one else is. <laughs> um, well, after some years, you know, I started to work with that gig as a practice. You know, I would work with my attachment to the role. I found quickly that if I wasn't attached, I would approach customers completely differently. If I saw them as mother and I was unattached, well, you know, that was some next level shit. You see, like I approached them completely different and I didn't have to, you know, act crazy. <laughs> so my role was a self-concept that was only relative to the moment. If my ego got attached to the self-concept, then things got weird. But if I could just notice the roles and kind of float through them without grabbing a hold of anything, then really it was just fine. Um, anyway, so this identity thing, um, who you are, who you think you are, doesn't exist. Um, it's a relative and constantly shifting concept. So who am I, right? Um, am I the sound Keith? Of course not. 
um, I think a fun breakdown of this is in Michael Singer's book, The Untethered Soul. But the breakdown I've been um, that I've you know done over the years with myself um, over and over again uh, as a as a practice is like this: um, I have two hands. They're my hands, but they're not who I am. Um, I have two feet. They're absolutely my feet, but they aren't who I am. I have two eyes. They're my eyes, but they aren't who I am. I have two ears. I have a nose. I have skin. And you do this through your entire body. And when you do, you won't find a piece that is you. None of who you are um, is there. You won't find it. Um, There isn't a cell that makes up these things that was there seven years ago, much less the day you were born. Um, But now, you know, if you choose to identify with the body and say that this is me, well, that's going to be a problem because it'll always be changing. So which version of this body are you? You see? Remember, the suffering comes from the belief that I is a fixed thing. I will always be changing. Life holds us hostage when we're hypersensitive to appearances uh, in a world of constant change. Um, I think I just jumbled that up. Life holds us hostage when we are hypersensitive to appearances in a world of constant change. That used to be on my door at work. Um, and Eknath Eshelon said that. I'm sure I'm, again, butchering the last name. Now, uh, at one point, I had a very long beard. Uh, a lot of people identified me with my beard. In fact, I began to identify with it as well. So, you know, due to life being what it is, um, it became unsustainable due to COVID and this mask stuff. Uh, I work in a mask all day long, every day. So it was kind of was kind of a hassle. I wanted to cut it off, but I was afraid. Um, and I had this thought kind of rolling around in my mind. Um, and one part of me saw it as foolish, but another part, you know, needed to get it cleared up. So I reached out to a friend of mine and I told her, I go, I just need to say this to somebody (laughs) and I just got to say it. And I said, I need to cut this beard off, but if I do, I'm afraid I won't be special. And she of course responded with that's stupid. No, I'm just kidding. She responded with something very thoughtful, but the long and short of it, no pun intended, was cut it off, um, that I would be special. And so I cut it off, and lo and behold, I'm still special. It's fine. But it was interesting because the piece of me that wanted the world to know that I was different as a kid was the same piece of me that was attached to the beard. You know, and we see this all the time, right? You know, I'm not going to go in depth and point it out, but you know what I mean, We all know these people and we see them in our feet every day. They clearly have a costume and a shtick and this whole thing. And you want to look at them and be like, who would you be without this? Who would you be without, you know, fill in the blank? So once we've done our thought exercise through our body and we've realized that who we are isn't in the body or the meat suit, we need to look at the things that we can't see or that we can't touch. Um... You know, we can look at our um, arbitrary ethnicities, our arbitrary nationalities, right? Does that 
you know, does that feel solid? Is that you? Or does that one create more others? Does it create more of them? Uh, does it make other people that aren't you? You see what I'm saying? Um, I don't really feel a sense of pride in those things. I, it's not like I earned it. You know, it's not like I worked really hard and I put in for them, right? They're arbitrary. Uh, they're just they're just too small to be me, to be perfectly honest. They aren't the big me. They aren't the big self with a capital S, right? I mean, uh, back to the kind of the inquiry, inquiry that we were doing, um, I have thoughts. They're my thoughts, I guess. <laughs> but are they who I am? Are those thoughts what I am? And if the answer is yes, then you have to ask yourself, which one? Which thought am I? Am I this one? Uh, what about this one? <laughs> you know, the mind is judgment, perception, consciousness, language, memory, and thinking. Uh, thoughts are the result of a neural process. Again, you're as much a thought as you are a fart or burp or a hiccup. You know, and we've all had our minds remember things or think things we'd rather they didn't. Um, we've had our bodies feel things we'd rather that they didn't feel. And at times that feeling that we didn't want to feel was due to a memory or a thought we didn't want to experience. Well, if we are those two things, mind and body, well, we just think different. Just think different thoughts. Think completely different. Feel different, you know, but we can't. Or I mean, we can, but it's, it's hard, right? It's not easy. It's not automatic. Um, here, uh, like this. So something external happens. A sound, for instance, right? You then experience a memory related to that sound. Uh, that memory is judged. And then the judgment of that memory induces a feeling in the body. Okay. Did you decide the external stimuli, the sound? Of course not. You didn't do that. Uh, did you decide the memory that came up? That memory that was experienced, did you decide that? No. You didn't. It just happened. Um, what about the judgment of the memory? Did you decide that? Did you just come up with that? Of course you didn't. And then what about the feeling? Did you decide on that feeling? Well, I'm just going to feel this way about this memory that I didn't induce, right? It's, or are we just simply, or were they just experienced? Were they just experiences? We experienced mental and then physical phenomena. So, which one of those things are you? You're not the external stimuli. Are you the memory that just came up? Are you the judgment that just came up? Which of those things are you? You know, and until you realize to create that space I'm always talking about, and we got all those things we didn't decide on, and you spend all of your time trying to quell physical feelings because you can't just sit there in your own shit, where's the free will? Where's the decision-making? Or are you just this pod of nerve endings that just bounces off of stimuli? That's the thing that for me, just that doesn't feel right. I got to have, I, I can't live like that, right? Um, or were all of those things that we experienced, were you all of them? Were you that, were you a, an, a, were you that culmination of all those things? I mean, if you, if you feel that way, does that feel like you? Does that feel authentically you? Of course not.
So when we start to cycle through these self-inquiring thought experiments, we feel some tension. Um, sometimes it's fear, right? Sometimes it's like this sense of loss. Call it ego death or whatever you want, but it's just the ego, right? It needs to be something, and that's fine. That's its job, just like it's the mind's job to think and remember, compare and contrast, and it's the hand's job to grab shit. Well, you know, the ego comes with the body, and it that's what it does. It lets the body think that it's a thing. So let's give the ego something to be. Since it needs to be something, and this Keith thing is a little fucked up, you know, let's tell the ego that ultimately we are constant, unchanging, eternal awareness or soul, if you like that word better. We are awareness. We are an awareness, whatever. Um, this is just to give the ego something to do, but ultimately we're just, we're nothing. We're nobody. We're emptiness. Um, and that can be strange or depressing for the ego to think about. Um, and if that does feel strange or depressing to you, ask yourself, what feels that sense of strangeness or depression? Not who feels it, but what? The ego feels it. Um, the best understanding I can give you is this. Let's say you're a painter. A fresh canvas is empty, right? If you're a writer, a fresh piece of paper is empty. You buy a new home, it's hopefully empty. <laughs> These things are just pure potentiality. It's ready to be whatever, ready to be filled. And that emptiness is your true nature, and now this is gonna sound bad for some of you due to your attachments, but soul isn't your true nature. Soul is still another relative identity. It still has samsara to deal with. It still has things to do. It's, it's a rung on a ladder that we're climbing. It's another relative identity. Um, it's a sweet and beautiful identity, but an identity nonetheless. But ultimately, we, we drop our soul as well. We just merge with source, right? When we recognize our emptiness, we can become playful. We start to see it. Um, we learn that life can be played with. Um, that's the meaning of the word lila. In Sanskrit, it means play or sport or drama. Um, to say that this is Krishna's lila, God's lila, God's drama. You know, where God pretends to be a separate somebody lost in this play, rediscovering itself. Um, all these fingers, they're, they're all, we're all fingers on one hand or, or waves on the ocean. Um, I think a great description is in Stanislav Grof's book, The Cosmic Game, where he describes a tide pool. And for a time, that tide pool is separate from the ocean. It has um, this time where it seems to be a separate ecosystem, you know, but eventually the tide comes in and it merges back with the ocean. Um, you know, that tide pool is the mind, the human concept, the soul. Eventually it all goes home. Eventually we all go back to Godhead, source, whatever. So I hope this was helpful. Um, I hope this gave you something to consider. Again, if you're interested in donating to the podcast, uh, go to the infinitesparkofbeing.com where you can find a link to the Patreon page to either donate $1 or $5 a month as a kindness donation. There's also links to the books and to the apparel as well. There's other things to read on there. Um, and all, um, as always, right, if 
If you have questions, comments, suggestions, please reach out. Let's talk. Um, we've known each other for many, many lifetimes, and, and we've been in love, and you know we've done it all together. We know each other, so you know, don't be weird. <laughs> reach out. Bye.